Some are always looking for more sports content, and among the glut of sports media, some are looking for sports content that dives a bit deeper and doesn't just stick to sports. So check out Backpack Broadcasting's original long-form sports journalism series, Sideline Stories. The award-winning original series takes viewers directly into underrepresented communities within the world of sports. It's a series that goes beyond traditional sports reporting, like box scores and statistics, presenting exclusive stories that you won't find anywhere else. With a diverse group of correspondents, the series provides interviews and interesting stories around the world of sports, because there is so much beyond the game, and so much that occurs off the field or court that impacts each of us and the world we live in. Giving a voice to athletes, coaches, fans, and everyone involved in athletics, Sideline Stories looks to push sports storytelling further than ever before. It's a winner of the 2020 Independent Shorts Awards, and all episodes of Sideline Stories are available for viewing today on Backpack Broadcasting's YouTube channel and Facebook page. Hard to Tell Podcast, episode 168, Dexter Henry, Brian Fonseca here. Hopefully everybody is staying safe and well. We have a guest today, and I'm very honored to have this man uh, join us on the podcast. Uh, he followed me on Twitter, and when one of the legends follows you, you got to follow back, and you have to reach out. And his name is Dave Sims, play-by-play guy for the Seattle Mariners, TV play-by-play guy, I want to say for the Seattle Mariners. Dave, what's up, man? Dexter, Brian, doing well. Good to see you guys. And uh, uh, this 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 means a lot to be, be able to do a couple of podcasts with brothers like this, man. This is good stuff. Oh man, it it, it, we, it means a lot for us to hear that. But to have for you real. here is just is just so fantastic. So I want to let people know. I want to start off like this. And Dave, we talked about this before we came on here and started recording. I first heard your voice growing up on WFAN when I was young. My parents didn't have cable. So I would listen to a lot of Knicks games on the radio. This is when Walt Frazier and Mike Green were on the radio. And you did the pregame show for that. And I used to listen to you all the time. So to be able to talk to yeah. you here now is, is, is really crazy. But you've had a long journey in sports journalism and broadcasting, a really long journey. And anytime we get people on here, we like to ask them, especially to share with younger people, what was your journey like? Can you describe your journey to where you are now as play-by-play guy of the Seattle Mariners? Yeah, well, I appreciate the kind words. It's uh, it, it it has been a heck of a run. I've been able to do just about everything I wanted to do uh, mm. in sports. I mean, uh, uh, sports writer, columnist, talk show host, TV producer, uh, anchor, play-by-play guy, uh, mm. and coming up on completing five decades. So, which is amazing. So, I've definitely reached that that spot where I, I'm hearing from a lot of cats like you. Say, yo, man. I grew up listening to you. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good thing, Dave. That's a good thing. <laughs> oh, hey, man. Hey. Yeah. Absolutely. We're for real. Especially <laughs> now. <laughs> yes, sir. Yes, sir. That's exactly right. But it, you know, it was something I started out when a yo big growing up in Philly. Father was uh, as everybody is for the most part in Philly, big sports fan. Grew up watching the Philadelphia Warriors with Chamberlain playing Russell and Oscar and all those guys, Jerry West. Go to Phillies games all the time because I live first seven. Uh, I became a big time baseball fan when I was seven or eight years old. We were a 15 minute walk from the ballpark. 
So I got to say, see Mays, Aaron, Frank Robinson, the era of the, that first, that wave number two of black players who became superstars. I got to grow up with them. I got to go to sit my first football game. It was like Black Jesus coming to town. Jim Brown and the Cleveland Browns playing at the Eagles. Oh, man. So I've been very lucky seeing all those guys and meeting all of them during the course of my career. Not all, but darn near all of them during the course of my career. So it's been a terrific run. I didn't ha- I've been lucky, knock wood, thank God. I didn't have overt discrimination, uh, at least to my face. There was a couple, three opportunities that were right there, all but close to the signing, and then something came up, and a couple of them were a little, little, little squishy there. Mm-hmm. All in all, thank God, everything has worked out, and I always wanted to be a bright, and I did baseball for ESPN yep. in 93, 94, and you know, I, I just, I, I'm very thankful and, and, and very blessed. And I, I thank my parents who are no longer with us, but for inspiring the work ethic, man. It's like, do it. Let's go. <laughs> yeah. Got to go. Don't, no, want, don't want to hear it. Do it. I like, I like that. See, see, Brian, don't want to hear it. Do it. That's always inspirational. It's always good to, good, to, good to have that from the family. I think the thing I think about when I think of you a lot, or I hear you on, on Mariners games, Dave, is, well, Dave's been doing this for a while. But there still aren't a lot of people that look like Dave doing what you do as a play-by-play guy. And you spoke to you spoke to a friend of mine, uh, a friend of both of ours, my, mine and Brian, Ebenezer Samuel. He did a piece in the Daily News about four years ago. Good friend of mine. Oh uh, from man, the industry. yeah, 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 yeah. And, yeah. yeah, and, yeah. and um, it was titled "Baseball Baseball Play-by-Play is Still a White Man's Game." And you were at the forefront of this piece, and you spoke a lot to Ebenezer about this. Um, and you said you were shocked. That not really shocked, but you didn't understand the reason why the numbers of play-by-play guys in baseball for people of color and particularly even black people is so is still so low. I think we're only in uh, what what is it? The three uh, play-by-play TV guys, black guys in baseball. Uh, right now, uh, on TV, Major League Baseball, myself, Kenny Singleton, who does both. both. You know, yep, uh, he does a, a decent percentage, and he's he's they're trying he's trying to retire, and they won't let him. He's so good. <laughs> he's such a great. He's Kenny's such a, a great good guy. dude, man. <laughs> oh man, he's one of the all-time best. Yep. Uh, TV. Who else? Uh, and then Robert Ford does radio for the, for the Astros, uh, right? For the Astros, yep. yeah. He's from the Bronx. He's from Bronx Science and went to Syracuse. Yep. And Mike Claiborne does the Cardinals pre and post. Um, uh, on radio and does some radio play-by-play, and that's it. The history of the game, history of Major League Baseball. Bill White was the first to do uh, uh, play-by-play radio and TV, and I believe if Paul Olden wasn't second, he was third because Greg Gumble's in there because Greg Gumble did the MSG package when they had the Yankees, Yankees late eighties. Yep, correct. So it's basically Bill, Greg, Paul. I think Bill Wilkerson did some work in St. Louis for. And uh, Billy Sample did some TV work with the Braves, and then mix it. That, that, I'm sixth in line. In the history of the game, man. This is That's... 2021. This is 2021, Dave. And the thing is, I, I wonder, like a lot of guys, especially in my generation, if you were thinking baseball, you were thinking about playing it, mm-hmm. and not so much maybe even thinking about broadcasting. You black guy broadcast world? Who are you kidding? <laughs> I guess I was hard-headed, dumb, or whatever, and I just didn't give a dang, and and, and just went for it, and and it worked out. Um, and on the way, it wasn't like I had a whole. Well, even like now, WFN has no black guys there. Nope, we've, that's we've, something we've talked about we've recently talked about on this. this show. Yeah, Gumble was the first one there, then me, then Bill Daughtry, Tony Page, and then 
Facebook page mm-hmm. and, they, and they hit and an organ and a station that came on air in 1987. Bri- Bri- Brian, Brian, I'm let you go on this because I know Brian has talked about this a lot, and Brian, we we've been very bothered by this as people who are are minorities, a black guy and a Hispanic guy in this industry. Brian, I, I know you've in had New York th- City in New York City. Way. Brian, I know you've had thoughts on this. So I, I go, I know you want to ask Dave stuff about it. So about the business stuff. So go. Because, like, obviously you came up in this era where it was a white man's game, but that hasn't really changed much, is I guess the point of this, right? Where you look at a WFAN and you look at just places in general where you look around and their definition of diversity is, all right, we have 20 people in a room, 18 of them are white guys, one of them is a white woman, and then maybe, maybe we have a black dude or a Latino dude in there. So I'm just wondering, like, as you watch things sort of, evolve and change quote unquote like have you really seen much of a change from your vantage point <laughs> in all and, you know in, in this in this gig i'm traveling all around the country and do a lot of talk shows and you look at guys like <clears throat> like you'll get a, somebody say hey man can you come to the show tomorrow talk about your ball club then you go on the website and you look and hey, let me take a look at the personnel there the, the, the brothers of color and hispanic brothers man I mean, it's ridiculous. And I don't know why, like in New York, Chicago, LA, New York, Chicago, and LA didn't have Hispanics on doing sports talk radio, man. Right. Hey, we need to do a serious evaluation, reevaluation. I mean, that's not right. Come on now. I mean, for years, all the years I did FAN and WNBC, you know, the, 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 the whole hodgepodge of, of New York, man, you're talking white, black, Hispanic, the whole thing. And you can't represent that on, on radio I'm, as a talk show host. And, and don't tell me they're not out there either. I mean, you're, you know, Brian, you're out there and other cats are out there and, and who are bilingual, which is an absolute necessity. I mean, I, like, I wish I had studied Spanish. Me too. Back in Me too. I know, you know a little bit of Spanish. I'm Puerto Rican, so it's a little different when you grow up in the States, but like, I, I, I'm getting there, you know? <laughs> but, but the fact that, you know, they would write, cats would recognize, you know, as Hispanic, that would be a heck of a, that would be a plus for you going into yeah. a clubhouse in baseball. So yeah, it, it's, it's so tired and, and, and for people you know, in baseball, to talk about, you know, especially like last summer, uh, the summer of white guilt with all, you know, all, all of our people. <laughs> I like that. Summer of white guilt. I like that, Dave. <laughs> I like that. I like that. Yeah, thank you. Um, it's like baseball can't be screaming at other people. I mean, we've done a hell of a job. There's no question. A great job. But it, it can do better. We may have five, six black guys in our club this year in Seattle. Mm. But diversity throughout the sports world in terms of everything in the front office, the broadcasting, it can, it can improve. It, it needs to improve. It's ridiculous. Uh, but the talk show, to your point, Brian, man, sports talk radio is one of the whitest venues we got in this country. Yeah. Yeah. And beyond that, even baseball, like I know because I was writing about something recently where, so recently MLB.com, they came out with their top 100 players of the year. Uh, 31 of them were Latino. And I was doing some research, sort of crunching the numbers, and there was a study a few years ago. I'm forgetting who the study was by, but it was a thorough study. Looked through all of it. It said about 27, 28% of Latinos uh, or or of Major League Baseball players were of Latino descent. The number had dropped for black players all the way down to like 6 or 8% or something along those lines. And what my sort of confusion was like, I grew up playing Little League Baseball here in New York City. Um, for years, from when I was six all the way up until I was a teenager, and then I basically pivoted to basketball and track. But when I was playing baseball in cities and like a lot of our games were in Bushwick and in different parts of Brooklyn or whatever, it was all Latino and black players mostly, like just playing. Like all my teammates 
were Latino and black or whatever. And that's kind of what the leagues were. And I'm wondering, like, where's the sort of disconnect mm. that you've seen between Little League Baseball, especially in cities, and getting those opportunities? Because, like, Adele Batances, who comes from Brooklyn and who comes from Dominican parents, doesn't always break through in the same way that I feel like a lot of guys could of, you know, black and Latino descent. Yeah, the, the key is everybody tells me it's, it's about the travel teams and and you need money for that. Mm. And you know, I was growing up in Philly a long time ago, man. I was like, if it costs 20 bucks, man, I could play in like three leagues or something, you know? <clears throat> I belong to a boys club. I went to another, after that season was over, I go play over here, then I go play over there. So I was playing all the time. <clears throat> but that dynamic is, is, from what I'm told, has changed. And the biggest problem is, is 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 the travel team, and if you can't afford to be to get to a tryout to be seen, and then get on the team, you know you got to buy you know, the cost of travel, equipment, etc. I know our ball club has uh, done a heck of a job of initiating some uh, some uh, some projects to help change that <clears throat> dynamic in Seattle. So, uh, but the other thing I always talk about, and I had a sociologist, the brother, I was on a panel, and he agreed with me that. Baseball's the ultimate uh, father-son hand-me-down sport. Hey, hey, Dad, let's go play some catch. Yeah, mm. yeah. Hey, I got to go my dad that. too. Right, let's go to let's go to playground. Let's throw it around. Hey, let's you know let's you know, throw BP. I mean, I I grew up with all that. A lot of guys don't grow up with that. Plus, we got to do a better job of selling our game. We got to do a better mm. job selling our players. I mean, the NBA's killing us. The NFL's killing us. Uh, you know, the poll a few years ago, uh, top what was it in the world ranking? The top. Uh, uh, athletes, professional athletes, and baseball. First player didn't come up to 122, and it was Jeter, and he'd already been retired three, four years. Wow. So, yeah, yeah. He looked that thing up. I, I, I remember that. I, he was like 120 something. Trout was like 150 something. And, and, and that was international. But even if you did it domestically, um, I, I don't know. I'd like to see where our guys would rank, and, and it's tough, man. And our demographic skews, you know, well into my generation. I always look at. You know, my generation is the last generation of black people who really gave a dang about baseball. And it's sort of bored out when I go to the ballpark. <laughs> right. Two, three, <laughs> four. Right. Right. There's not there's not that many. I feel like I don't even have that many black friends that still like baseball or would want to go to a game. It's really I just know like my cousin, we grew up big Mets fans and we'll still go to games and we still want to want to do that. But not that many. I want to ask you about the Negro League recognition, Dave, that. Uh, we saw MLB, so to say, they're going to sort of recognize the stats from some of the Negro League players. Um, how did how did you feel about that? Because I thought, like, in one way, the gesture was a good thing, but in another way, it sort of doesn't really talk about what they had to go through or address the reason why they were denied these opportunities or how some of these men, their parts of their careers were robbed from them. Yeah, you know, I, I think it's recognition mainly from a number standpoint in terms mm-hmm. of. The why and wherefores, they were kept out for so long, what, after Fleetwood Walker back in, what, 1880s or something until yep. 1947. That's a long stretch of time. And um, yeah, you're not going to see that. In the I think that's all about the statisticians, you know, your baseball reference, all your 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 analytic guys. Uh, say the Sabre, that's what I'm thinking, the Sabre, the Sabre matricians. That's for them. They're going to put all those numbers together, put them in the book. But in terms of telling the story, people, you know, there's plenty of books written about why and wherefores that it happened. So I look at it from one standpoint. It's nice to have Josh. It'll be nice to have Gibson's numbers, while probably incomplete, given that 
the nature of barnstorming and everything, and you didn't have the regulatory, you know, season, you know, as as and and record keeping. I think that I, I was wrong when I said it. The seasons were regulated, no question. But in terms of the numbers, uh, they're not. They weren't kept as diligently as what we're, we're used to now. And then, and then when you factor in all the barnstorming, how many of those games are counted and, and, and documented? So that that's going to be interesting to see how they come up with a final solution for doing that. But it, it, it makes me feel good, and I, I think it gives some justification. I know from interviewing a lot of the, the old timers, I've interviewed a bunch of Leon Day and a bunch of guys before they pass who say, "Hey, man, we're major leaguers. Buck on it. We're major leaguers. We're, we're big time." And they were. Absolutely. Absolutely. No, no doubt about that. Before we got on, you know, you, you see Brian's background here. Brian's got Roberto uh, Clemente in the background. You have a number 42 hat on for Jackie Robinson. I'm wearing a Jackie Robinson t-shirt for people who are not watching. I have Evans Field behind me. So we've got a lot of baseball history we have on here. That wasn't planned either. It wasn't None planned. Of None of this was planned. We, did, we, we didn't know, Dave. And you always, yeah, rocked, I, you always rocked the 42 hat. With Roberto Clemente, Brian and I just discussed this a couple of podcasts ago. And I've talked about this with Marley Rivera, a good friend of mine, and some other uh, Marley, great other Hispanic uh, writers around the game. What do you think should be done about Roberto Clemente's number? Do you feel like it 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 should be retired? Should it be honored in the same way that we honor Jackie? Uh, It definitely should be honored. Uh, Retire? I wouldn't have if they retired a number. I wouldn't have a problem with it. I know when we had Franklin Gutierrez with us, he wore twenty one because of uh, Roberto Clemente. He'd grown up hearing all the stories about him. And you talk to any, obviously you talk to any Hispanic players, they're going to be, hey, man, that's our guy. And, uh, you know, he went through, you know, it probably, the story probably is not as uh, prolific as uh, the documentation of what Mr. Robinson, Mr. Doby went through. But he, you know, through, you know the 50s, traveling the South in the minor leagues, and then, and then coming up to the bigs, it couldn't have been a walk in the park for sure. No. So, and, and his numbers and his accomplishments, I mean, I, I still – Every time I see that throw from 1971, he throws Merv Rettman out from third base mm-hmm. from the deep right field corner. And you watch him in the set, what was it, the 71 All-Star game when he there was like nine or ten Hall of Famers in that game. And Clemente went opposite field. Aaron hit an opposite field home run. If you haven't looked at that, you need to. it's on YouTube, the 71 yeah. uh, All-Star game. It's oh, it's unbelievable. I mean, Bench Morgan, uh, uh, was Mays in that? Yeah, I think Mays was in it. Aaron. Stargell, you had so many Hall of Famers, uh, uh, black and Hispanic guys, and and in general, even you know, white Hall of Famers, Stremski, I think Tory might. It was, it's wow, it's it's so what much fun. Yeah, man, what a game. Yeah, no, I I definitely feel yeah. like you should be honored for sure. For yeah, sure. if twenty one, if they retired twenty one, I'm cool with that. And we do have a day for him, but I think probably should make a bigger deal of it. I think it was yeah this year it was in September because of the pandemic. Yep. But uh, that to honor him, he he's hey man, he's he was the well, uh, the yeah, he was the first Hispanic player superstar that yes. that became a superstar once he got to the major leagues. Yeah. Backpack Broadcasting continues to bring you the best original sports content, but now you can get more of the content you love. For as little as $3 a month, you can get access to bonus content, including behind-the-scenes footage and interviews from the Sports Walk, Sideline Stories, or the Ain't Hard to Tell podcast. All this exclusive content comes via Patreon. There are tiered levels of patronage, and each Backpack Broadcasting patron receives exclusive perks. Your support 
helps Backpack Broadcasting create more of the original content that you love. Visit Backpack Broadcasting's Patreon page and become a patron today. Obviously, Puerto Rican, my father, uh, who was born and raised out there. My mother was too. She was born out there, but my father was born and raised out there. Like, this is the first guy that you learn about from your father, who's from Puerto Rico, who's like, look, he did all these things, these charitable things, but he also tried to, you know, uh, you know, lead a stoppage or, or a pause on opening day because of, you know, certain things weren't right in this country kind of ahead of his time. And kind of like what we were talking about last year in the year of uh, white guilt, as you said, Dave, like this is something that Clemente, like the systemic racism he was trying to fight against back then. Like there are a lot of just things he symbolized both in and out of baseball. And then you add to that, like the way it all ended, it's like, yeah, this is probably something that's long overdue because he's not even someone that just represents Latino players and he's our guy, so to speak. But if you look at him, he's also a black man. And I feel mm-hmm. like baseball needs to just embrace, like, especially of today's game, like me and Dexter talked on this podcast about, like, they need to do more with embracing guys like Tim Anderson. We're starting to see it with Fernando Tatis Jr. Mm-hmm. But, like, we need to not, try to beam these guys after they're hitting home runs. And that's one of the things that annoys me the most. So I think Clemente in some roundabout way symbolizes all of that, like the progression that we really need to see in baseball. But then also I just want to use that and ask you, like, where do you see guys like that? Like Tim Anderson and some of the other players that we're talking about, like, does baseball itself just have to fully embrace them so that we can, you know, probably get more black and Latino kids in the major leagues who want to play? Yeah, you know, it, it's interesting. Justin Dunn, who's from Long Island, a uh, right-hander, black kid. Former from Met. College. Yeah, Saw former Met, exactly. Yeah. The, Cano, the, the Cano deal and the Diaz deal, which you guys are still pissed off about. But not, happy, not, not happy. Not happy at all, Dave. Diaz is good last year. Diaz was better last year. He was. He was annoying. He was annoying. I got a rep from my guy Diaz, you know. Tell you what, he'll get it straight. He was so good with us a couple, three years ago. He was. It was just unbelievable. But, um. Well, you guys in terms of Timmy, in, in terms of, yeah, Kelnick, hopefully we'll see him this year sooner than later. Um, um, in terms of Tim Anderson yeah. and letting him be himself, I, I, I saw a piece in ESPN the other day, he and Tony LaRusa, he went in a little trepidation. He came out, he loves LaRusa now. LaRusa was, you know, basically must have told him, hey, man, just be you. And he's going to do it. And that's how he was raised. You know, from Alabama, was a basketball player. And then wound up, he went to a baseball trap they loved him and that here he is in baseball he was a batting champion in the major leagues two years ago terrific player matter of fact i, I wore this one time the last time i saw him when we were in chicago so that's what 29 in the 19th season mm-hmm. might have been the 18th season and um i had this on and the next i know todd frazier a little bit frazier mm-hmm. comes hey big dog he says well man anderson he, he would he loves eating your cap and he was afraid to come up to you. i said man please he said can you get him a cap I said, yeah, I brought it to me. I said, yo, man, speak up. You know, come on, what are you doing? <laughs> really? Um, it's, it, I think it's important that guys show their their personality like Tim does. Don't go overboard, but I like I like the way he, he expresses his enthusiasm. And, and the same with Tatis and Manny. And every now and then he catches a couple of, I mean, I hate to break it down this way, but you know, sometimes you'll see a couple of white guys uh, that, that play with an effervescence. You got to talk about it. 
You know, mm-hmm. it's a great game. Have fun. Trevor Bauer has fun. He's a little, you know, mm-hmm. he's different. But a little he problematic. <laughs> yeah. Cindergard. Yeah. yeah. I mean, they have fun. To, they were tense. You know, I, I, I don't have, I mean, as long as you're not like blatantly getting in somebody's face and, you know, like, you know, because that would be a fight in the schoolyard, right? right, right. Mean, oh, yeah. But, you know, there, there's certain, stay within the parameters. But, you know, you want to be jubilant and, and, and you know, like pumping your fist. I mean, guys have been pumping their fist forever. So, I mean, come on. I, I uh, no, I, 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 I like that. We have to ask you, since you're with the Mariners, we got to ask you about the whole situation going out with Kevin Mather. Um, you know, that 45-minute Q&A video to the Bellevue Breakfast Rotary Club and his comments uh, against former Asian players. And we've seen an increase in Asian discrimination and, and hate crimes going up in this country, which is absolutely ridiculous. Um, as somebody who does play-by-play for the team, when all this came out, and obviously he's resigned even though we know it was a firing he, he was resigned as the black play-by-play voice on tv of this when you see this and you see those kind of comments from kevin mather how, how did that make you feel mr sims because i mean i got I, I you had to feel like us we were just like this is this is ridiculous it was a week ago uh on sunday i got a text at four seventeen from a buddy of mine who's a radio guy out there I saw the headline. I didn't really think that much of it, and then I clicked on it, and I was, and I watched, and about halfway through, I said, "Man, what is going on here?" I, I just, I'll just leave it at this. It was disturbing. Mm. It was intense. It was wrong, wrong-headed, uh, mean, mean-spirited, and he paid a price, lost his job, and uh, it, it, you know, it's funny. I had told him at one point. Uh, during last summer when everything was going through and they had asked me to do various forums with some of the black players and whatnot. Mm. And I did a couple things about, uh, what was it? The, uh, the other boys of summer about the mm-hmm. history, uh, the history of the Negro league. And after I did one of those forums with our players, I did a couple of, them. I called him up or he called, I can't remember who called who, but I, I just remember saying, I said, right about now, you're pretty happy. You got a black guy as your play by play guy. Mm. 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 And then that happens. Um, yeah. Hey, he paid the ultimate price. Out of here. Yeah, and, and I think I think the sort of issue here too, beyond what he was saying about also um, Julio Rodriguez, one of the Mariners' top prospects, saying that yeah. he doesn't hey, speak English. Something real quick. Yeah, right, right, right. Because usually during January we do these caravans and we, you know, all around it. Pacific Northwest and do things. So this year we couldn't right. do it. Right. So everything was virtual. So I had to do a bunch of interviews. I did a couple where I had, I think I did three where there was two guys and I did one interview. It was just one dude. And two of them. One of them was Julio Rodriguez. Look it up. You can look it up on our channel. Delightful 30 minutes. Mm. The man's English is phenomenal. Moreover, mm. mm. His command of American idioms is on target like he had grown up like the three of us. Mm. And this was a language he just learned in the last three years. So when you see somebody say that his English is not good, it couldn't be more wrong. Mm. Yeah. Like I saw a report that said it was a reporter. I'm forgetting his name said that he was going to interview Julio Rodriguez in October of 2018. And Julio requested that the interview be done in English because obviously he's come to work on it. Like, and remember, like I'm 
I'm growing up watching boxing, for example, right? And boxing is a sport that is extremely diverse. A lot of, especially in the in the the, the lighter weight classes, are largely run by Black and Latino folks and some Asian folks as well, some Eastern European as well. But it's very like diverse, like legitimately not diverse, not buzzword diverse. You grow up watching a lot of dudes like Miguel Cotto, for example, who is doing interviews in Spanish early on practices his English gets good enough to where like eight years or five years down the line, he's doing interviews in English. And I don't think people from here understand like that is hard. Right. Because I think a lot of people from here don't quite understand or don't really know or haven't tried to learn a second language. Like as someone who's grown up around Spanish and has always like sort of understood Spanish, but is has had trouble speaking it and now is trying to get better at it. I understand how difficult that is. So for him to say that about Julio Rodriguez, I was like, he just clearly, he hasn't had to know any other language outside of English, so he wouldn't understand that. And the same thing he was saying about the Japanese pitcher whose name is escaping me. Uh, Sashi Iwakuma. Iwakuma, yes. And complaining about the the $75,000 to use for a translator. And it's like, yo, these translators (laughs) that follow around these baseball players and MMA athletes who come from Brazil, and they're not just teaching them a language. They're teaching them how to adjust at the drop of a hat, like how to live in America, which is a country that can give you a lot of culture shock, uh, especially in a a big city like Seattle. You know, it it was difficult to understand, too, that. Julio's had his own podcast, I'd say about a year, within the last year. Mm. He's interviewing his other rookies, the other young players, vibing with Julio. What's he speaking English to those cats? They're having a blast. (laughs) He didn't know any of this. (laughs) He's like, what? Right. (laughs) It's like, it's not even like this is some nondescript talent. This is like your top prospect. Like you, you should know what your top prospect is up to. Dave, that, the, the that, fact that, the fact you have to take off your hat, Dave, is just like Ooh. <laughs> that's uh, <clears throat> excuse me. That's what makes it so mind blowing. It really does. It really does. Hey, we move on. It true. It truly yeah, does. And, and one one thing I wanted to bring up about not not about that specifically, but I think another thing is like a lot. There are other people in baseball. I feel like need to get smoked out because they feel the same way. Like I'm I'm oh. sure. I'm sure Kevin Mather is not the only Kevin no Mather way. He's the only who one. is in baseball. So I'm wondering if Will, and I don't know if any of us are going to have an answer, but I'll throw it to you guys. Like, is there a way we can sort of uh, find this out, so to speak, by, you know, looking at past behavior patterns or comments and things of that nature that probably fell under the radar that weren't as, I guess, flagrant or as exposed as this? If anybody brings it out, it'll be the Players Association. And if you saw who's it, Josh Donaldson was the first player responding with a tweet about it, you know, basically saying, hey, we've been saying this for years. Now it's borne out. Uh, Players Association came out with a, uh, you know, with a statement as well. So I, I think that's that was ammunition for their for their uh, for their side, for sure. And it's already a uh, very acrimonious uh, relationship players and, and owners and this didn't help no I, I, I no i agree that's how that's how it's going to come out two last questions for you dave one looking at your team the mariners that, that you uh are with uh, all the time and, and broadcasting the games of what do you think their chances are of competing in the uh, al west this season what, what what do you like them to do it's so many young players and the thing that has impressed me in talking to guys um uh, on on these uh, team 
oriented uh, you know, broadcasts and, and, and tapes and whatnot. The, and from what I remember from doing the same thing last year, it's a tight grip, a tight knit group of guys. They realize that the franchise hasn't been to the playoffs since 01. So they definitely want to break through with that. And, you know, the more veteran guys like Seeger's in his final year of his contract, Hanniger's about 31 now coming off an injury. He's missed the last year and a half. I mean, they're going to be driven like crazy, plus the hunger of the young guys. So now you have so many young guys who are basically getting their first test of fire and see how they do. I mean, the projection, the, the biggest, let's see, the highest wind projection that I've seen thus far is 74. Now, that's not something you want to take to the bank uh, one way or the other. I mean, right. I don't think it'll be much higher. I don't think it'll be much lower. But. You know, Houston's come back to the pack a little bit. They're, they still have some dynamic, obviously, players in, in Bregman, Correa, Altuve. I love Guriel and Michael Brantley. That's five bad dudes that can that can swing it in their mm-hmm. lineup. And, and they, they lose Springer, which is a huge loss. They lose Verlander to Tommy John. They And they clo- I think they get closing issues. The A's lose Liam, uh, uh, Liam Hendricks. Hendricks. They lose uh, the shortstop, um, my boy's name. Oh, finished third. Marcus Simeon? Yeah, Marcus Simeon, who finished third in MVP a couple of years ago. Yeah. They lost Robbie Grossman, a nice platoon player. They may come back. So that's why I'm starting to – I feel like a window or maybe a jump could happen because sometimes you see young teams, all of a sudden they coalesce, they come together. So we'll see. It's hard to make a prediction because we have uh, – who is it? Um, Montero, who we got from Texas, is the closer. Hopefully he's healthy. Ken, uh, Kenyon Middleton who has got a big arm. He's coming off of Tommy John. Tommy John He's, yep. He can really bring it, see how he does. And then uh, I think Paxton is a great addition. If he stays healthy, I'd love to see him make 30, 35 starts. He, could, he can win 18, 19, 20 games. Mm-hmm. Marco Gonzalez pitched well, 7-2 with a good ERA, tremendous strikeout to walk ratio last year. Uh, Justice Sheffield had a breakthrough as a starter. Yep. And then after that, you got Dunn, you got Margavichus, and Logan Gilbert, who we, I keep hearing a whole lot about. I've only seen him once or twice in the amount, I think, last year in spring training. Big right-hander, funky delivery, tough to pick up. He's like six, 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 seven. By the time he's finished, he's in your kitchen. So there's some unknowns, but I tell you what, it could be some breakthroughs. It really yeah. could be. Could definitely be a breakthrough. And I guess the last thing for me, Dave, is we talked at the top about the lack of black play-by-play guys, lack of – Hispanic play-by-play guys and just people in the field covering the sport of, uh, of baseball. As somebody who's done this for a long time, and as Brian said, you've watched a lot of evolution for good or for bad. Where do you think we are headed in terms of people of color in sports media, sports journalism, and that representation? Do you see things changing in the right way and more diversity and more inclusion? Well, way back in... Um when I started, I met the late great Larry Whiteside, who was at the uh, at the Boston Globe. And when I first met, I think when I first started coming to the NBA in '77, I remember him saying, "Sims, you're now on the list," because he would keep a list of black sports writers, particularly guys in the NBA beat. It was like I think I was like number twelve or thirteen. Mm. Well, that number has has grown exponentially since then. Uh, I, I I am still, while I'm dismayed on one hand. When I think back to that time when Larry told me about being on the list and the cats that I see, have seen over the, uh, the, the passing years, it's a lot better. But I just hope that guys and, and gals who who want to do it are in school or working like you guys are and getting your chops and, and, and getting your reps and, and working on your craft and your game. 
that at some point it, it's going to be the playing field is going to be a lot more level than it is uh, right now. And the problem, and, and the same thing you hear about, like in the NFL, when you talk about there's so few black coaches, and I always talk about, and it's so true. You hire who you know, and you know there's not a there's not a predominance of brothers hanging out or, or belong to country clubs. So you're not meeting those kind of people. So somewhere at some point there's got to be a you know come together uh, in that regard. And I think programmers on radio and sports talk radio, hey, let's go to a black barbershop. You can almost pick somebody out to be a host for crying <laughs> out loud if they can speak the language. And, I mean, because that's where all that right. That's where all no, the great right. sports discussions are. Yep. So yeah. you mean to tell me you're going to cut your nose off and not have those kind of folks involved with instead of a whole bunch of white suburban dudes? I mean, and nothing. And mo- a lot of those guys are my friends. Don't get me wrong, but at the, but you know, you want to talk about diversity? You're going to scream at somebody for, hey, you're not diverse enough. You're not doing the right thing. Well, hello, look at your own house. And yeah. and, and, and I think, and, and it's just amazing to me that, like I said, there's nobody black at um, FAN. Larry Hardesty is the only brother at uh, ESPN New York. Uh, uh, what ninety eight seven? Yep. And, and then like in Seattle at. Um, uh, our star flagship. We don't have any anybody black on air at KJR, the other uh, station. Um, uh, they used to have Cliff Averill, but he, he uh, you know, ex Seahawk, <clears throat> he did it for about a year and change. He did a midday show, co host, but they don't have anybody black full time on a regular shift. And then you just go right through. I have a friend, uh, friend of mine who's from Long Island. We call each other brother from another mother. Nice, funny Jewish guy. Played against Dr. J uh, in high school, uh, and he's a he's an actor, and he's working at a station in Lexington, Kentucky. And I was going through their website, nothing. My man Doc Walker got cut loose after many years years in DC. DC, yeah. I can't think. Like I think does Michael Holly still work in, in in Boston? He was on one of the. He may still be on one of the radio stations up there. I know he and Michael Smith do a podcast. Yeah, they do that show together now on Peacock Network. Yeah, but you know the numbers are. You know, I didn't. I can't tell you about L.A. and San Francisco, but I'd be willing to bet there's not much representation there either. And I mean, it's it's sad. It's really especially the especially non pro athletes because this is another point that Dexter and I talk about a lot, where it's like a lot of radio stations, TV networks, or whatever. Like when they grab black people to be on certain platforms it'll be like this person used to be in the nfl this person used to be in the nba and it's like what about the dudes who weren't <laughs> right like 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 dave like all oh, like us like we, we are dudes who aren't but you know what dave you've done it you're paving the way for people you've inspired me like i said it's a it's an honor because i listened to you on the radio as a kid and for people like me and brian who are younger, just not trying to make you feel old, Dave, but just seeing you having done it. You know it, what? I embrace that. Don't feel bad. All right. Go, all right. You got, you got to embrace it. Just seeing you do it is truly no, an inspiration. Sometimes, sometimes we, we've had we've had guests up here where, like, Dexter will tell them my age, and they'll be, like, his friends, and they'll be like, get, get out of here. Like, how are you? <laughs> <laughs> but yeah. I'm like, you know. But we got to embrace the age. Dave, man, thank you. Thank you so much for joining us. We we Very should well. we'll try to have you back at some point, maybe in the, the middle of the baseball season, and we'll, we'll talk some more baseball and stuff okay. again. All right? Absolutely, absolutely. One time for your mom, one time. One time for your mom, one time. One time for your mind this week. We're going to close out Black History Month. I know we're in March, but we're just going to close out Black History Month with some things that are very important to talk about. 
surrounding Black History Month that I think is important. Brian has huh? something that I think maybe people wouldn't expect, but if you know Brian, you kind of would expect this for him. <laughs> it also ties into Black History Month. I will say that. Ah. Let me let me just first, real quick, because you mentioned um, like where we are in uh, Hip Hop Uncovered, a series I'm watching on Hulu. They actually cover in episode three. This isn't really a spoiler, but they sort of tie in NWA coming out with Fuck the Police, Rodney King riots, how this stuff sort of influenced some of these people that they're really covering in the series. So now that you mentioned that, that sort of got my attention. I'm only halfway done with the series, but so far uh, it's it's good. And episode three especially I thought was the strongest one so far. We're going to have to discuss that later in later podcasts because I'm going to watch and finish it. So we, we're yeah. going to have to discuss that series. Some people around hip-hop that people don't really talk about. I was very excited to see that Trick Trick was one of the people who will be heavily featured because Trick Trick, if you know hip-hop and if you know Detroit hip-hop, is always an excellent interview. <laughs> Absolutely. Can't wait. Can't wait for the sound bites for him. Go ahead. So my one time for your mind, uh, to close out Black History Month, I think it's important to recognize what's going on on the WWE side of things right now. Wrestling. You know, uh, you can say what you want about certain things within the company, but as of right now, what I'm going to shed light on is the women's title match that has now been booked for WrestleMania officially. Bianca Belair, Royal Rumble winner. Uh, second black Royal Rumble winner ever after The Rock, first woman uh, who is black to have won the Royal Rumble, won earlier in January. She will be facing champion Sasha Banks uh, for the Women's Championship in what will be the first women's title match in WrestleMania history to be contested by two black women, which mm. I thought was interesting. You know what I mean? Like mm-hmm. It just kind of shows you, especially in a sport like wrestling, that has been sort of... Uh, you know, had a checkered history, let's say, <laughs> in a lot of different ways. Like, I went and looked up some history. So the Women's Championship was originally created in 1956. The Fabulous Mula was the first Women's Champion. She held it officially for 28 years. Uh, unofficially, there are some other, like, title exchanges. But in terms of recognized history, she held that title to, like, 1984, and which is insane. Like, 28 years. I'm not even 28 years old yet. Like, that's how long the title reign was. Damn. Um, the first black woman's champion didn't come along until 1998, and that was Jacqueline. And I was going through sort of the history, and there hasn't been that many women's champions in WWE. There hasn't been a lot of black women in WWE, period. But there hasn't been a lot of... Uh, you know, black women's champions or black champions period in WWE. And this is why a couple of years ago talked about Kofi Kingston winning on this podcast and how significant that was for a black man to have a WrestleMania moment. You know what I mean? Especially somebody from Ghana, West Africa, who came over to the States, college educated, graduated from Boston College and was able to become a WWE champion. Like you saw people crying in bars and things like that. Like it was one of those. Um, Jacqueline, two-time women's champion. These are these are all the black women that I could find in WWE history to win women's championships. It was Jacqueline twice. It was Jazz twice. And if you watch wrestling from back in the day, uh, especially ECW, Jazz was like she was definitely women's championship worthy. I will say that. Layla Ill, uh, Ill or L, I don't, I forget how to pronounce her last name. She was great. Uh, she's actually Afro-British, uh, of Moroccan and Spanish descent. So not from America, but still a woman of color who is black. Alicia Fox, Naomi, Sasha Banks has won it a bunch of times. And then at NXT, there was Sasha Banks and Ember Moon. And that's really it. 
So you're looking at seven different women hmm. who have been able to become champions, uh, six not on NXT, six on the main roster. So this is pretty significant. And the way things are going with Bianca Belair, somebody who was an All-American SEC track and field athlete in, in college, uh, somebody who was like legitimately one of the best athletes in the country at one point, like this is somebody who has a chance to really make something special happen. And WWE clearly has resources behind her. These are two, like, Sasha Banks is coming off arguably her best year performance-wise of her career. Like, she's had some really great matches and storyline and storytelling and just the creativity around her character and things of that nature, taking it to a new level. And Bianca Belair is obviously newer. So I think this has the potential to be a great match. I hope that is the main event of at least night one of WrestleMania because I think that will be a very seminal moment. And I don't really care who wins. I just kind of hope that they have a classic, you know, sort of five-star encounter that I know they're capable of having. And I think these are some of the things that we should hold in high regard, um, you know, as we're watching some of these sporting events. Like, she's talked about this on the documentary they did on the WWE Network on her. They have, like, these bunch of documentary series. And she's like, you know, I want there to be a time where, like, I can just be myself. I understand the importance of representation. But, like, we want to get to a point, and this is kind of what Jessica Mendoza said to me in a piece that I did uh, last month on Latinos and Social Justice. Is like, you want to get to the point where like the representation is so equal that it almost doesn't matter like who's where and it's truly like fair game but until then like this is what we have to do we have to make sure that all these people get represented we honor them we tout them for who they are who they have been or whatever and you know i i think that is something definitely worth recognizing in closing out black history month yeah man definitely important to see the matchup between two black women for black history month i know we've spoken about this many times on the yeah. podcast, even myself growing up, you just didn't see a lot of representation, right, in terms of black people, whether it's in sports, whether it was in video games, literature, whatever. So to see that is definitely huge, even yeah. in the sport of wrestling. And look, when it comes down to this for this situation, look, you know me, I'm always rooting for everybody black. And no matter who wins that match, look, somebody black is going to win. And uh, <laughs> there's not too many times we can say that. So that, that isn't sure. bad at all. In terms of Black History Month, um, I just want to talk, before I get into my uh, story that I want to talk about, a little bit about myself. Had a really interesting and good Black History Month. Got to work on some great stories at work, uh, surrounding some great people doing some stuff in the field of meteorology around Black history, uh, some established, some younger. And I thought it was important for me to also tell stories that sometimes we don't always have to look in the past for Black history or at people who are so much older that have done it for a certain time. There are some young people that are actually creating history from across different cultures. And it's important we tell those stories too and give the people their flowers while they're doing it, no matter what their age is. I think that's always important to do. So I got to do that. And then if you haven't seen uh, on Twitter, Facebook, however you follow me, I uh, was nominated for the New York Association of Black Journalists Stuart Scott Award, Stuart Scott Award, which was their award for sports journalism. I was nominated uh, with three other people, one being a great friend of the show, Kimberly Martin. I uh, was also nominated along with Taylor Rooks, who won the award, and my man Justin Walters for WPIX, who also does uh, some great sports reporting, too. But the reason it meant so much to me, uh, Brian, and everybody else is that, look, I got nominated for this award, and I don't even work at a major sports outlet. Um, you know, my right. work for doing this was for doing work at AccuWeather with the sports and weather series field conditions that we do, um, and also my independent work, Sideline Stories that the New York Association of Black Journalists also recognize and I'm very grateful for. And obviously this podcast too, and what we do around sports and hip hop. So 
to be recognized for that. And I think what matters the most for me about it is uh, I'm recognized for an award that's named after one of my heroes, somebody I've really looked up to in sports journalism is Stuart Scott, who passed away and left us uh, a few years ago, but his legacy is still with us. And I'm somebody who watched him, as I know you did too, Brian. I remember watching him late in my teens and early into my adulthood in college. And the thing that always struck me uh, about his work was just how unapologetically black he was, how just he, he stuck to what he was and his voice and how he would be and inspired me a lot to say, you don't have to be this way or code switch all the time as a journalist. You can actually be who you are and, and stand in your blackness or stand in your hip hopness, if that is a word, and, and the terms and hip hop vernacular he used in his highlights and his reporting. It was just dope. So seeing that was definitely an inspiration to me. And I know it's been an inspiration to a lot of people. So to be nominated for an award, even though I didn't win the award, was just a huge honor. And I think a testament to a lot of the work uh, that I've done in terms of investing truly in myself and not waiting for other people to give me opportunities, which I think is truly the best way um, you can honor Stuart Scott in sports journalism. So, yeah, it was definitely an honor for me to do that. But I think that ties into reflecting on myself with Black history, but also reflecting on the month. And, you know, we talked a lot about the different things around Black history this month. And I came across an article earlier this month uh, on the site called The Diamondback. And it was an article written by a writer called Yahira Galvez. And the article was titled Black History Month. This actually was a column opinion, I should say, but it was titled Black History Month has been commodified and corporatized. Here's why that's problematic. And the headline in this article by Ms. Galvez, I absolutely agree with, because I think if we look back at some of the things that have occurred since the murders of Breonna Taylor and George Floyd, and even going further back, if we go to Trayvon Martin, and Sandra Bland, and others who have died at the hands of the police, Alton Sterling, uh, and others to name a few, we saw a groundswell. We saw people take to the streets last summer. Then we saw a lot of corporations, you know, put out their little messages about Black Lives Matter. And I thought even then it was fair to question, are these corporations really down? Are they really down for the cause? Do they really want to end systemic racism? And now you've also seen, in which uh, Ms. Galvez also expresses in her article, you've seen a lot of these corporations get behind Black History Month. And some of it can feel a bit performative, or it's at least necessary for us to question that because this is a country whose foundation has built, been built on the erasure of Black narratives. Black people built this country for free, and a lot of that has been tried to be erased. So much so that even earlier in the month, Brian and I talked about, in a one-time free of mind, a school in Utah that was where parents were signing up to not have their kids being taught black history as if somehow it's not a part of American history. And I'll reiterate what I said in that one time for your mind. Black history is a part of American history. Hispanic history is a part of American history. Asian history is part of American history. And you can't tell the story without those cultures in America. It's impossible. And people are still trying to erase that. People do that with the Hispanic community, which is the fastest growing community in this country. And they're trying to erase their story sometimes too. But we have folks like Brian that are making sure that is not, not going to happen. But the history right. can't be lost uh, upon us. And I think it's fair to question co companies and corporations whether now, when they conveniently come behind Black History Month or Black Lives Matter, if this is just all a way for them to look more progressive, 
a way for them to earn more money because it just appears that they're standing with us. So I, I challenge all of us, of all races, of all cultures, to look at your companies and say, what are you truly doing to stand with Black Lives Matter? What are you truly doing to stand behind all people? How are you supporting our Hispanic brothers and sisters, our Asian brothers and sisters, especially now in a time when we're seeing Asian hate crimes on the, on, on the rise, excuse me, crimes against Asians, hate crimes against Asians on the rise. These are times when you're going to see people come out and say this stuff, but what are they really doing? Is the company you work for, if you have a job in this time, which is very difficult, is the company you work for truly committed to being more diverse and more, maybe more importantly, more inclusive? Not that they just hired a couple of people that look like me and Brian and put us in there, but are those people actually comfortable once they work there? Are their voices actually being heard, right? If you bring up maybe this point to your employers, are they actually hearing you and taking action? These are the things that matters. And I think this is why uh, this article I read in questioning that is really fair for us to do. We need to question that in everything as we go forward. It shouldn't just be about Black History Month. It shouldn't just be when people take to the streets because of injustice. It's imperative on all of us to push this forward. And a friend of mine, she had a great tweet that I retweeted the other day. And it was very specific in what she said in talking about journalism in the news industry when it comes to this. And she said, news friends normalize covering black history stories outside of just February. Same goes for women's history in March, Hispanic history from September 15th to October 15th, and Asian Pacific uh, history in May stories, etc. Yeah, these are stories we should be telling all the time because they're absolutely part of American history, not just when it's convenient, not when it's just easy to get behind a month. And I also want to add our LGBTQ plus uh, brothers and sisters in there for Pride Month in June. Not just when it's convenient to do these things, but all the time. And it's imperative upon us as people of color to hold these corporations accountable that they, it isn't just performative. Now, now is the time to really use your voice heard. Don't let these corporations or the places you work with say they just stand with Black Lives Matter. Challenge them. How are they going to do it? What are they doing in the community? Are they making the workplace better? Now is the time to ask those questions not just for Black History Month, not just for any of these months, but going on to the future. We really need to see who's about change. And it's not about being performative when you want to be. It's really about being about it and holding people accountable as we go forward. But it's a great Black History Month. Uh, a lot of uh, history is still being created by a lot of Black people that we're really proud of. And we we're going to see it from our other cultures, people from other uh, brothers and sisters from other cultures across the country as we celebrate their heritage to going forward. That's it for this episode of the Ain't Hard to Tell podcast, episode 168. Huge thank you to our guests for this episode. Yes. The legendary Dave Sims. It was an honor to talk with him. I know Brian and I thoroughly enjoyed that conversation, and Word. he will be back to talk uh, with us more for sure. We are now uh, in the swing of Women's History Month, and we plan to have some great guests for the month. Uh, to talk to you women doing their great things in sports, journalism, hip-hop, et cetera, and beyond. So that should be fun to talk to our sisters about what they are doing uh, and how they're progressing things in their respective fields. So we'll have more on that. We always continue to thank you, the listeners and viewers, as usual, for your support and your continued support as we go forward. So for episode 168 of the Ain't Hard to Tell podcast, I'm Dexter Henry. He's Brian Fonseca. Till next time, y'all. Peace.